This episode is sponsored by the Financial Due Diligence Framework Course. If you're doing any type of financial analysis and participate in M&A, strategy, or turnaround projects, you absolutely need to check out this course. By completing this comprehensive video course, you'll be strongly armed to analyze the P&L of any company and to be able to provide actionable, insightful reports. This course teaches you how to properly understand the methodology of how to conduct thorough financial analysis and what is important in financial due diligence. If you're looking for a career in transaction services in one of the big four, in a transaction services boutique, or to be a better private equity professional or M&A associate, you'll get a solid foundation to land your next job. And as a special offer, if you use the code SASDistrict, you'll get $100 off the entire course made specifically for our listeners. So if you're interested, go check out horizoncapital.com slash learn due diligence. everyone, this is your host, Akhil Jabbar, and welcome back to another episode of SaaS District. In today's episode, we'll be talking about SaaS value generation and maximizing your exit value. Today, we have our guest, Jim Varnish, joining us. Jim has spent the last two decades as a serial entrepreneur, operator, investor, and M&A expert. He currently runs Orchard Black, a boutique growth services firm complete with serial entrepreneurs and growth experts who are all accomplished operators and consultants with an investor mindset and a history of value creation and exits. Orchard Black's business model not only accelerates their value, but they align their own compensation with their partner client success, which we'll talk about today. So welcome, Jim. Super excited to have you on the SaaS District show today. Thanks. Excited to be here. Uh, so, Jim, your, your, your guys' company, Orchid Black, you guys talk about, let's talk about growth, growing smart and growing fast. Uh, but, you know, before, before we get into growth, I think we, we need to understand, you know, how, how product market fit works. And I think that's probably one of the, one of the biggest challenges when, you know, especially with early stage SaaS companies. Um, do you guys have, do you have any strategies you can share on how you found, you know, founders can implement to kind of hone in on their niche offering and then maybe expand into a larger market when trying to find uh, product market fit? Yeah, I mean, nailing your niche is something that we as business owners just always look past, especially SaaS companies for some reason. Uh, we know that other companies must nail their niche. You know, Apple doesn't sell actual apples or swimmer, right? They sell products. Steakhouses aren't known for having, you know, the most organic food. But uh, when it comes to ourselves and what we bring to the market, we oftentimes ignore this concept of intellectual honesty of actually knowing what we do and what we do really well and bringing that to the market um, because we want to help, because we want to turn profitable, because we want to grow. And But what we don't realize is that's actually a major impediment to growth is not nailing our niche, not focusing on our niche. And uh, you know, one example is a cloud computing company that I worked at a few years back. We had been spending about a million dollars plus on sales and marketing and we're getting a ton of activity, ton of leads, right? Ton of even marketing qualified leads as we coined them, uh, but nothing was converting. Um, and we took an honest look at, you know, what we were doing, our niche, if you will, our targeting, our positioning, and um, implemented what we now call kind of the five aspects of nailing your niche, um, where we focus on um, at Orchid Black is a big part of our philosophy. Uh, first is, you know, are you solving for for a really profitable pain, and uh, is that pain recurring? Right, aspirin versus vitamin, if you will. Um, you know, what is the believable solution that is repeatable and scalable that you're connecting to that industry pain? That's number two. Um, are there enough identifiable, tar identifiable targets to actually bring that solution to provide that to, to provide the solution to that pain? Um, and then, um, how do you find them as part of that? Right. <laughs> Not just so popular pain, believable solution, identifiable, tar identifiable targets. And then what's your unique approach and tangible results that are associated with that? And so, you know, those five things, pain, solution, targets, approach, and really tangible results are things that people often look past. And your positioning has to really connect to that if you're going to be successful. Yeah. So, with, for sense. example, with, yeah, with that, with that cloud computing company, Right, that million dollars in spend started to actually see a three to one or five to one CAC to LTV value, which is what you want to see in your business, as opposed to what they were seeing, which is about a half to one, right? Not even actually getting a million dollars of results for their million dollars in spend. And so it was, um, 
you know, that's, that's something that I think a lot of companies struggle with. Hmm. Is, is there anything else, you know, I imagine you speak with a lot of, you know, SaaS companies, founders, you know, marketers, um, any other things that you say are some of the top things that maybe limit uh, these companies to achieving faster growth where you come in and you say, okay, this is a you know, huge opportunity and they're, they're missing out on? Yeah, there's a lot of them. Um, and part of it may sound cheesy, but a lot of it's at the reverse of our company USP, right? They grow fast, but they don't grow smart. Uh, so our focus is grow fat, grow, grow smart and grow fast, right? A lot of companies grow fast before they grow smart or grow fast, but not smart even. Um, and there's this philosophy, um, you know, prior to starting Orchid Black, I spent about a year in VC or venture capital. Um, and there's a philosophy in VC where you select only the best deals that have this chance of 100x, right? Our next unicorn, if you will. Um, and while I have a ton of really dear friends in VC um, and spent time there myself, the model is simply flawed. Um, it may result in a few big wins and there's a place for venture capital, but the uh, asset class as a whole leaves a lot to be desired for both founders and investors at the end of the day. Um, and it's one of the worst performing asset classes when you look at it at the aggregate level, um, which just leaves a lot of companies compromised in the process, right? Taking in a ton of capital, losing a lot of equity and control. And, and this is largely due to this core focus on growing fast, right? Infusion of capital um, and throwing money at a company will not always result in growth <laughs> and or it may, but at what cost, right? Um, and so, you know, um, there's this philosophy of, capital, there's this philosophy of growth that's gets smart and fast. And there's this philosophy that after all, 95% uh, of tech companies fail, right? Which is less of a philosophy, more of just a plain fact. Um, and so, uh, and, you know, S&P has turnover about 60% plus every decade because the best companies are starting to fail, right? And that's right. just because of the environment that we live in that focuses on fast growth and not smart growth in a lot of ways. Um, so that's really where our company came from. Our origin story, if you will, started at Orchid Black, was coming out of venture capital, seeing the opportunity um, to focus on certain companies that had that were hitting a lot of their targets, um, that were growing in some capacities, but not in others. And that didn't want to just throw a bunch of money at the problem, but rather grow smart and grow fast. So long way of saying, <laughs> a lot of companies don't really live by that philosophy, unfortunately. So interestingly, um, you're saying sometimes, you know, the, the problem is to, to grow faster is actually that the too much capital, too much money and not managing it properly or, or, you know, smartly. Right. So I think that's probably a limitation that people don't don't realize and think about as often as maybe they should. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. You know, other kind of growth strategies. I know you, you guys are, you know, experts on both sides, you know, on the product led side and also go to market. Uh, but, you know, I understand you guys focus on the content side because I know there's a saying, right, uh, the more content I put out, the more luck I have, which is, you know, a quote by, by Gary Vee may have heard of, um, you know, so as, as kind of your strategies, do, do you say, you know, content marketing is, is a good strategy for SEO inbound leads and to generate more values for, for your market as part of your uh, way of working with companies? Yeah, I mean, every, everybody's company's growth trajectory has a little bit different of a twist to it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, content is oftentimes a big part of it, but we are also living in a content rich world where content can kind of take one of two themes, if you will, from a content strategy perspective. And it's super important to boil down and realize what your theme is and stick to it and test and iterate on it to keep current. The first is probably along the Gary Vee philosophy, which is quantity content, right? Short-term growth hacks, long-term SEO seeding strategy, if you will. Get a bunch of pages up that focus on one one keyword each, right? Short and long tail, right? Has enough pages to drive SEO strategy and you just keep pushing, pushing, pushing the quantity of content, right? Um, and that works in a lot of, for a lot of companies for certain go-to-market strategies, right? Um, the other is quality content focused on a funnel conversion strategy that seeds continuous growth beyond just pure SEO, right? Um, producing educational content to introduce someone to trendy topics, right? So, you know, awareness, if you will. Um, then engagement, right? Making the reader stop and think and, and more importantly, question um, why they might need you. And that's generally thought leadership in nature, powerful enough to encourage debate and dialogue. You know, some might even connect that to their strategic manifesto or strategic narrative, if you will. Um, and then finally, encouraging to convert or buy, right? Having navigated those early stages of the funnel through the content strategy, through a real conversion funnel um, with that help of educational and engaging content. 
um, employing highly targeted content um, or email marketing tactics to drive customers to buy. Right. So it's I think it's there's a quantity strategy and there's a quality strategy. It's very hard to do both. Um, in fact, it's damn near impossible to do both. But um, ultimately, you know, that's kind of uh, the way that I view the world around content strategy. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, you, you can if you have you know huge budgets and you know massive teams just running marketing and content. But yeah, it's a uh, takes takes a while but to even, build up to that. <laughs> but even then, you put your you got a brand reputation to think about, right? Of quality content versus quantity. And so, if people see your brand that has this highly thought of content thought leadership with also this really nominal quality, you know, poor quality content that's driving quantity results. It's, it has, it has a brand reputation risk as well attached to that. That's true. Yeah. Uh, so from your perspective, you know, um, maybe like in the early stages if some SaaS companies are maybe just starting off, what, what would you say are maybe some recommendations or some of the best marketing channels, uh, maybe for, for highest ROI, maybe let's say for the first 10 or even hundred, hundred customers to get them in. Yeah. So I think um, it depends what 100 or 10 means to you, right? B2B versus B2C and, you know, all those things. But if we really boil it down, um, there's really six core ways to drive revenue growth for a SaaS business, um, especially in your early days. And, you know, you kind of matrix it out, if you will, on one matrix from easy to hard um, and on one matrix from, you know, the ability to get quick versus slow feedback loop, like the feedback loop attached to it. Um, and you always want to start with easy and quick, right? Because you learn a lot and that's the easiest way to, to see results, um, which the easiest quick way is warm intros from existing customers or referral network, right? But right. You know, that's number one. So if we look beyond that, where there's a quick, quick impact, um, maybe a medium effort, it's social media, right? Uh, LinkedIn, sometimes Twitter, depends on the channels that you know your customers engage on, but social media is another great one. Um, a little bit easier, um, but but slower for feedback is outbound cold calling, like a real programmatic approach towards um, email and calling and, and getting customers in, um, which typically is a little bit later stage for a company, but um, can be useful for some companies to get their first initial customers. Um, on the harder side, uh, you know, leveraging platforms and marketplaces, right? If you're a Salesforce app, like the salesforce.com ecosystem is huge, right? Um, and things like that to drive deal flow. Um, and then the final ones are a little bit, you know, more of on the harder side, traditional marketing, you know, paid ads and SEO, which can take up to 18 months to really get full force. So you just need to be thoughtful of the way you balance out these strategies from warm intros, social media, outbound platforms or marketplaces, traditional marketing like SEO or traditional marketing like paid ads and then SEO. And if you can, you know, kind of do your testing, iterate the right way you'll find what works for you. And it's usually, you know, one or two that, that work the best um, in your early days. So, I mean, you guys, uh, obviously, you know, when you approach businesses, you start working with them, you guys are very, you know, data-driven, analytical. So you probably see, okay, like these are one or two channels that are working really, really well. Um, you guys dig in deep into the business metrics. What, what, what are, you know, SaaS specifically, what, can you share some, you know, business metrics that you guys really like to focus on, you know, especially when assessing the companies and why, why is that more, you know, important to you guys? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, again, it really depends on the market you're in and the customer you're serving, right? B2C versus B2B versus government, right? Different measures that might matter the most. Um, but what really matters most is um, the stage or the maturity of the business, right? Are you pre-product market fit? Um, are you efficiency stage where you're really kind of really trying to plug and play and make sure to minimize customer acquisition costs, right? Maximize lifetime value, things like that. Or are you in your scale stage where you're bringing a lot of other things like channel partners into the equation to help really drive um, additional scalable growth? Um, so when we look at the stages of the company, um, we focus mostly on validation and efficiency stage. So validation is, you know, focus on stickiness and virality, right? Engaging customers in a meaningful way, um, growing adoption and minimizing churn. So getting the right customers in. Those are, those are metrics that matter a lot. Um, as you start to evolve into more of that efficiency stage, you're optimizing pricing and pouring some of that money back into customer acquisition, uh, customer success, efficient operations. And so things like customer acquisition costs, lifetime value, um, net retention rate are things that really start to matter a lot. And as you look towards exit, right, the whole game changes in terms of what your acquirer is actually looking for on the other side of that transferable value, if you will. Um, but the most common ones are always going to be, you know, ARR growth 
and and profit margin, which is really called the rule of 40, right? Your EBITDA growth plus your EBITDA margin or your, uh, sorry, your revenue growth plus your EBITDA margin look, needs to have 40% when you add the two together. That's the most important metric in a lot of cases. And in many cases, a lot of people are looking for a rule of 50, so equaling 50%. Um, and, um, you know, things like sales efficiency, um, ARR, of course, right? Your recurring revenues is going to be a, a driving metric. And so I think the the most important part of metrics and measures conversation is that it all rolls up to a plan, right? Um, and I think it was Dwight Eisenhower that said uh, that in preparing for battle, uh, he always found that plans are useless, but planning process is indispensable. I, think, I don't know if plans are useless, but um, the planning process truly is the most important part of planning and the measurement that comes out of that planning process is what aligns the strategy and the vision to ultimately all the operational work that the team is doing. And so one big part of that is how the hell do we measure the success <laughs> of this plan, right? And uh, um, and so the stage you're at, the goals of the company, right? Whether exit is a part of this, these are all things that are critical to know when determining what your key metrics are. But it ultimately starts with, um, you know, what stage of a business you're in and and how you're going to prove out that model to get to the next stage of business evolution. Got it. So if, if let's say I'm a SaaS company listening in, um, or, or just any any general business, you know, founder, and I, I say, come, I come, approach, you know, Jim at Orchid Black, and I, I want to partner with you guys. Um, you know, how, how do you guys typically partner with them? How are you going to help them to grow? What can I kind of expect? Uh, you know, having that conversation and, and that and that engagement. Yeah. I mean, so imagine you're a founder or CEO, and you've built a strong company, right? And by all measures, you've achieved a lot of success. Uh, you're hitting some targets, but you might be missing others. And ultimately, you're a founder. Right? This is what we this is the, what we go through. Um, and the key ingredient is, are you open to someone else who's been in your shoes, who's been there, done that, that to help you grow and sell your business? And that you, know, you can align with to make it worth as much as you wanted to do when building this, right? Um, and that's a that's a fundamental switch for some people from thinking like a lifestyle business. And it, it's got to be up to the founder to make that call and, and say, yes, I know I need help. I know I'm not growing to the place where I think I can. I know I can hit more targets or better targets and exit for a higher valuation than I would be worth in the market today. Um, but I can't do it myself. Um, and and so what we built is a model that serves that problem, that um, solutions that problem with a very interesting business model that focuses on aligning performance with incentives um, and that have a desire to exit um, in the next couple of years, within the next three years is really our core focus. Um, and so we'll align our business model um, with the companies that we're serving. Um, and in turn, we expect the founders to really dig in and make sure that they're all in on our program towards driving growth and value creation. And when that happens, we all win, which is really kind of the cool special part of the model that we that we employ. Nice. So, so can you go a little bit deeper, right? So if I'm a SaaS founder, I'm ready to take that step. I, I'm saying, yes, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of plateaued. I, I don't know what else to do to grow my company. I want to partner with somebody who can really accelerate and then, you know, finally go out and, and exit together. Um, yeah. what, what, what is that typical, you know, maybe high level, your playbook, your method and offering look like uh, and what can they expect there? Yeah, so we knew there needed to be an objective lens to view a company's true potential um, in the market. And nothing really existed that looked at an organization from a 360 perspective, if you will. Um, but our challenge was how to create something comprehensive yet simple that founders aren't the people who are going to spend a million dollars on McKinsey consultants, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we needed a way to tell founders what they needed to hear about value in their business in four to six weeks and do it for a really you know, inexpensive feat. Um, and so we created um, the Value Creation Assessment or our VCA, which is our proprietary system that looks at a company from every angle, um, the strategy, the talent, the, the product, the revenue, the operations. And, and ultimately, um, is uh, we spent a lot of time figuring out exactly what was going to make companies worth so much more, SaaS companies worth so much more based on our experience in those five pillars. Um, so that founders didn't have to because we wish we had it <laughs> when we were at that stage. So this VCA has become our uh, plug and play customization around every tech company that we see that's looking to grow and exit. Um, and sometimes I'm surprised how well it works because um, it is it is customized to every company. 
but it is so configurable, if you will, um, that diagnoses what a company needs to grow um, and maximize the value of the business. And then we leverage our playbook um, with hundreds of situational blueprint, blueprints or plays, if you will. Blueprints, yeah. Uh, and, um, and that's what we operate alongside of founders or our how. So the VCA has become our what, and the playbook has become our how, working along and partnering with founders. And it's usually about a six to 36 month process. Um, happy to give a few use cases if, if that would be helpful as well. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to hear, like, are you guys kind of, you know, acting as more, you know, CMO? Or are you more focused on, on product led? Uh, are you kind of like becoming, you know, VP of sales and, you know, drive, you know, or is it kind of all of the above and you have a, you know, wherever needed play? Yeah, we've, um, we've assembled a team of about 30, what I would call SWAT team growth experts. So you know, we've got folks who are experts in product led growth or product management. We've got folks who are um, experts in building, uh, you know, SDR and account executive programs and, and driving the right uh, predictable revenue streams, if you will, from a sales and marketing perspective. And the list goes on and on. But what they all have in common is they've all been founders. They've all been consultants. And most importantly, they've all been operators for the last couple decades, driving real value in businesses on the path towards exiting. And what we realized is if we combined all of these folks into a SWAT team, if you will, um, added on a layer of consistency, which is our VCA and our in our playbook, um, we would be able to augment the right companies, the right founders with whatever they needed on their path towards exit and do so in a business model, like I mentioned, that is really unique in the marketplace. Um, so, you know, one example where we had five of our operators in, which was a fintech company, uh, founder had bootstrapped for about a decade and built an amazing business that was flatlining. Um, he wanted to exit in the next year, given personal goals and spend his time advising other startups and really just enjoying life because he had worked pretty hard the last decade. Um, and because he was, he had new lo low new logo growth um, and um, you know, his valuation just wasn't close to what he wanted. He had, wasn't hitting the right metrics, if you will, um, that, that the acquirers would, would require. Um, and so what he did was, um, you know, he, he tried a bunch of new ideas to generate sales. A lot of the things we talked about on here, um, but even that wasn't working like it used to because he really didn't, he, he needed, he needed something that was missing um, and he didn't know what it was. And so his next 12 month forecast was getting even worse. And given his desire to exit, um, he w recommended to him that he work with Orchid Black, right, um, to determine what that, you know, unlocked value creation opportunity was. Um, so we did. Uh, we ran our VCA process in a couple weeks, and the founder had a roadmap on how to increase the value of his business about 50% in the matter of 12 months. So pretty, you know, large increase in valuation. Um, and he was really pleased with the roadmap, decided to, um, ask us to help on and help stay on or run the business on the path towards exit with him. Uh, we took a blend of some cash and some equity and sacrificed a lot of that cash because we really believed in what we were working towards with him on the exit. Mm -hmm. um, and, and in a matter of seven months, actually, with five members of our team and his awesome existing team, um, we increased the value from 23.1 million to 36 million, which was essentially a 55% increase in valuation in seven months. And everyone won big. So, um, you know, whether it's that short stint, you know, six month program like that, or a couple of years that it's going to take to get to the value that the founder is looking for. Um, we really focus on founder needs, founder desires, and helping founders, you know, win big on the other side of an exit. And sometimes that's to your point, fractional operators. Sometimes it's just coaching plus a roadmap, plus an operating system that might not exist. It really is. Um, it's really cool that we've got a, a, the ability to be a bit more boutique with our approach because we're not McKinsey, right? Um, we have McKinsey level talent, but we are a 30 person team that is as nimble and agile as they come because we work with growth stage tech companies. Yeah. So uh, we have to be. Right? <laughs> um, and so, you know, that's really um, that's really what our program works looks like, if you will. 
And just two kind of quick follow-up questions on that. One is um, typically, I'm, I'm assuming you always keep the founder on board. You don't take over kind of overall, you know, oh, CEO, yeah. Uh, yeah, product role. And then second is, um, do you guys also assist on the, on the M&A side? Like, you know, once it gets to a point, you've got that 30 million valuation. Do you guys go out and find that, you know, strategic or whoever uh, buyer out there and work with the, with the team to, to find that the gap and close? We do. Um, depending on the size of that transaction and whether it's a, you know, private equity exit or a strategic acquisition, we may work with another third party as part of that um, exit. But most often, um, we're we have sufficient knowledge and network and the ability to drive to that exit on our own. Depending again on where we're able to get within the time frame and what we always try to leverage third parties where we need to. Um, but you know, founder friendly means trying to do as much as you can. Um, and take on as much as you can, provided it's in your niche. And we've got a lot of M&A experts on the team. Cool. So as I see, you guys, you know, work with SaaS. We also work with, you know, a, you know, a bunch of different company uh, and verticals as well. Um, you know, what, what's the minimum requirement? I'm, I'm a company. I want to partner with Orchid Black. And, and then how does that kind of connect back to your overall mission and purpose? Like, is it what's the size limit? What's the, you know, at what stage? What are you guys looking for? Yeah, uh, I love that you said mission. <laughs> uh, I mean, our mission is to uplift companies um, and amplify their value, not only in the marketplace, but also in the world. And to us, mission isn't just a thing that stands out there like it is for a lot of companies, unfortunately. It's something that we embody. Um, and we, when we connect that to you know our brand and who we serve, it's really about this lush jungle of opportunity that you see behind me. Um, you know, we hunt for that rare breed of partner, uh, promising business with a unique offering. Um, and we think of them as prized exotic orchids because like prized exotic orchids, an exceptional company's true value really emerges with the tending and guiding and pruning and care that drives the cultivation of growth. Um, and that's our greenhouse, if you will, is we find the companies we can help the most. We nurture, we care, we, we try to make sure that they, like an orchid, can grow for a lifetime. Uh, orchids grow for over 100 years sometimes. Did you know that? Um, and we hunt for the ones that are passionate, uh, that have built a great company and, and really want to amplify their value in the marketplace and in the world, um, that are stuck in the day-to-day -day working in the business but not on the business way more than they would like to be and want to be elevated themselves the same way their company is elevated. And in many cases, growth is declining and they're looking for an exit within the next few years. Um, from a attribute perspective, they're in their growth stage. They're between 3 million and 50 million in revenue. And they're usually profitable, which is where you know, in the black, black orchid black came from partially, um, or at least line of sight towards being in the black and, and have elements of product market fit, even if they haven't fully validated it. Um, they're SaaS companies, or at the very least tech focused, right? Tech forward. Say 90% of our companies are SaaS. The other 10% is some very innovative or disruptive view on technology in the marketplace that um, is our exception to the rule, if you will. Um, and that are highly innovative companies um, who have not raised um, your typical venture capital or private equity around. Like they have very little or no institutional capital in because our program needs to have as little competing interests at the table. We have the founder's interest in mind. And so when there's VC or private equity money involved, that usually kind of tilts our program and doesn't make it as impactful. And so that's a pretty solid, really important thing is that everyone has the founder's interest at heart, um, which the nature of the VC or private equity model just doesn't really do. And then most importantly, um, we've got to see line of sight towards 50 to 100% year over year value creation. Um, which means that we can only take on a certain number of companies. Um, they've got to meet a lot of uh, value creation potential, right? We're not looking for the squares or the Facebooks of the world. We're looking for the companies that could have been the squares or the Facebooks of the world had they had the right help and the right guide, if you will. Um, and, and so those are really kind of our core attributes of what we're looking for. Got it. So, I mean, so you said 50 to 100 percent, but they're typically declining and you see it as this is the potential, though, that we can take it 50 to 100 percent year over year growth. And does it matter location, geographical, or, you know, all over the world or just North America, Canada, U.S.? So it's really important the 50 to 100 percent value creation. So valuation increase, not necessarily growth. Growth is certainly part of it, but there's mm -hmm. other drivers of value besides just revenue enhancement. 
Um, and US-based is our focus now, although we do have companies that most of the companies we work with do have some level of international operations as well. Got it. Makes sense. Um, and, the, and talking about exit strategy, so you, you've got this playbook, you come in, a, part, a partner, you know, you, you have this kind of clear playbook, how you, got, you guys are going to execute on, uh, you know, in two or three years, um, you know, you, you're now ready to, to make that, that, that exit for everybody wins. What is that, you know, value generation, that time period, and how are you maximizing that, that exit value for a company? And, you know, for you, uh, how can you get the most from that, that exit as a SaaS founder? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I gave you one example of a fintech company I mentioned before. Whether it's six or seven months, which is kind of the low end of the program from a time perspective, or three years, that 50 to 100% value creation um, is driven, 50 to 100% year over year value creation is driven off of a number of things. You nailed it with growth, right? Revenue enhancement is a major part of it, whether that's product-led growth, marketing-led growth, sales-led growth, whatever it might be, growth is a big part of it. Um, there's also levers beyond growth, which is oftentimes where companies totally miss the ball, right? They're focused on EBITDA or revenue as the driver of their multiple, but it's not about multiples, it's about creating transferable value to your acquirer. Um, and so that isn't just revenue, that isn't just EBITDA, that's what type of talent are you matching up with from your organization to theirs, right? What type of inspirational or strategic value are you adding with your moat or your competitive value proposition that's more than just revenue, right? Um, what products are you adding to their set that make it one plus one equals two that they're able to leverage their existing customer base to sell new products? And they're able to leverage your new customer base to sell their products um, or services or whatever it might be. It, there is so much to transferable value creation beyond just growth, which is why companies are either bought or they're sold. And, you know, you want to end up being bought. You want people to come to you. You want to set it up for the right acquirer. And you want it to be so much of a no-brainer that if you come to them with an impossible offer around what that transferable value actually is, they have no choice but to buy it because it's actually way more than what you put in front of them. And, and that, is, that is what value is. That is where transferable value takes over, where something like a LinkedIn gets picked up by a Microsoft for reasons that people couldn't even understand the level of what that multiple actually was from a revenue and profitability perspective. Because it wasn't about revenue. It wasn't about profitability. It was about transferable value. And that starts with strategy and it works its way all the way through the table stakes in the organization, which is essentially revenue and profitability. Nice. So obviously, you know, revenue, profitability being, you know, a big factor in this uh, and revenue growth, right? Like that, how fast you're growing is, is kind of a big uh, part of the equation. How do you guys kind of help, you know, those companies who are maybe on, on a decline, how do you help them get that more predictable, you know, in, in terms of the revenue growth and generation there? Yeah, one of the uh, one of the most common mistakes that we see is expecting sellers to do everything, right? And sometimes that sellers to do marketing, sometimes that sellers to do, uh, geez, I've seen sellers doing every task in the organization because <laughs> they weren't selling. Um, but the most common one is that account executives or sellers should and will find new business or prospecting from their own Rolodexes, their own cold calls. And the problem is they're compensated for way higher value activities, right? They're terrible at prospecting in almost every case because they don't have the personality typically that's been evolved to get the difference between an AE and an SDR or you know BDR, someone that actually is focused on prospecting. And not only are they terrible at prospecting, but just if they aren't, right? They even if they prospect well, once they generate pipeline, they've now become too busy to prospect effectively and to sell effectively. So you've got this endless loop of, of sales failure. Um, and so where we focus is on, you know, when a company's at that stage focused on predictable revenue, how do we generate the right new opportunities for sellers? And is sellers even part of the program at the end of the day, or should marketing take over in a lot of cases, or product-led growth take over in a lot of cases? Um, and ultimately, that's really three facets. The first is, um, what are they doing from a seeds perspective, right? What are they planting? Referrals, SEO, PR, content, things that take a really long time to develop, um, but ultimately are you know, just that, they're seeds to develop over time. Um, what are they doing from a Nets perspective? You know, classic marketing, paid, you know, paid email, uh, you know, general email campaigns, things like that, you know, 
catching, what are they catching um, in a much bigger funnel that they need then need to kind of work through the funnel? And then what are they spearing for, which is more of that outbound approach that typically companies put on sellers to prospect, but ultimately need an actual programmatic revenue engine to drive that growth. And sometimes that sits within sales, sometimes it sits within marketing, but ultimately whether you call it an SDR program or a BDR program, whatever you call it, it's outbound prospecting. And it's the focus on um, the core goal is creating predictable revenue that um, is controllable, that you know when you put a dollar in here, it amounts to this and this is exactly what feeds it. Um, and the only way to best augment something like that is to have a funnel or a you know conversion funnel that actually works for you beyond just outbound prospecting. So there's that sales aspect and then there's that marketing aspect. And a lot of people will tell you that the funnel is dead, but they're lying. It's not dead. Um, and it's time tested. It's true. Um, it's the backbone of almost every fast growing company <laughs> and whatever that funnel is, right? It's, it's the way that humans operate. Humans are aware of something, they consider it and then they buy it or they don't buy it. And it always follows that path, right? Awareness, consideration and conversion or purchasing. And thank God for the product led growth movement movement that's, um, you know, led there to be more than one way to design a customer acquisition funnel. Um, and the approach around it has evolved so much. Um, but ultimately, this is something that haunts so many tech or SaaS CEOs, founders. Um, and it's something that so many people fail at is connecting the dots between your revenue team, right? Marketing and sales and everything in between. Um, and that is just something that is uh, a passion, if you can't tell. <laughs> of ours as we work through the growth narrative with companies. Love it. Is there a scenario? So, I mean, when you come in and partner with these companies, you know, it's typically like a, a two or three year cycle, most likely, right? You said six to 36 months. Is that, is that correct? That's exactly right. Yep. Um, is there a scenario in there where you ever have to go out and, and help them raise capital? Like whether you know, it's a series A or a series B, or you know, are you guys funding part of this? Or are you guys raising capital from, from you know, some other investors? Or are you just, you know, the goal is only just to exit and, and you know, work towards that? Yeah, um, there's some things that I can't fully talk about that are in the sure. works that are the evolution of what I'm about to say that my board would kill me if I let <laughs> out to the public now. But what I would say is right now, as of right now, our focus um, oftentimes needs capital, right? Sometimes mm -hmm. that's a lot of capital, sometimes it's a little. Um, and we have our network that we're able to go out to uh, one by one for deals as needed. Um, that's not a scalable strategy, and we know that. Um, but it is something that's worked well for us because we have the right partner providers who are looking for the deals that we're driving. Um, now, what works out even better is a scenario where the capital is ready to deploy, right? Call it fun, call it whatever you want. And so a uh, long-term vision of what we're working towards is being able to have something like that that we can deploy into our deals. Um, but for right now, you know, uh, our version of investing is investing our own fees back into the business and bringing capital providers as needed. That makes sense. Uh, Jim, kind of love kind of your, your history. You've got, you know, uh, quite a vast experience in, in this game. Um, we'd love to kind of go back in time uh, and maybe start, you know, with a little bit on the personal side and your upbringings. Um, you mentioned, you know, you come from a background from the you know, trials and tribulations, a family of a divorce home, and how that's kind of led to some of your own internal motivations and maybe important lessons that you've learned and, and made you who you are today. Can you share about, you know, what that was like and how you've able to overcome it, deal with it in, in a positive manner, right? Because obviously it's, you know, obviously there's going to be some downsides, but you know, you've, you've come, come out on top and now you're, you're back in the forest, right? In the orchids. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, uh, my background's a little different than most. I think I was thrown into business at the age of 15. And so whether it was that or some of the personal things that, that you, uh, you know, family business of 15, right? So it wasn't necessarily the worst thing, but, um, the, whether it's you know, the family business or the family uh, troubles and tribulations, it, it ultimately boiled down, um, boils down to me for everyone thinks about having a strategy in their business, um, especially founders, but you need a strategy for your personal life and ultimately beyond your business life. And ultimately that starts with your origin story. Um, you know, mine wasn't glamorous. I think a lot of us aren't. We all have, we all have a reason that we're doing some of the hardest things <laughs> that exist, which is building companies, right? 95% of what we're doing fails when you look at an aggregate level. So it obviously has 
we're crazy um, to do what we do in a lot of ways. Um, mm. And I would swear a lot of that's because of the ups, a lot of it's because of the downs. Um, and even if it feels like there's a lot of downs, um, you know, being a student of divorce, it's not unique, right? The, uh, I think there's probably more divorced parents than there are, than there are married parents out there, unfortunately. Um, and when we look at highly competitive environments like building and growing companies, um, what I didn't learn until a few years ago was, was how to connect my origin story, whether this be, you know, what I've gone through or, you know, what someone else is going through troubles as a student, right? Important, you know, things with authority. Um, I learned that in addition to having this business focus, right, you need a personal focus. You need a system to validate product market fit and predictable revenue. And you need a system to operate your life by too, right? Otherwise you hit burnout, you go crazy. <laughs> and I, I, I love this comparison um, that my, my coach instilled in me, which was comparing founders to pro athletes. Um, we're trying to accomplish the impossible in many cases, right? Um, yet we are, we still want to do it because the rewards are so worth it on the other end. Um, and if we look at pro athletes, they train, they play to win, they recover, they celebrate, and then they repeat, right? If we look at founders, we play to win and we play to win and we play to win and we don't train, we don't recover, we don't celebrate. <laughs> and at least for, for, for me, right? And many of the people that I run into, and it's like this hustle culture has, has um, taken over the founder community. And I think is a, one of the biggest reasons why companies fail is because founders are burnt out. And so why wouldn't we treat ourselves more like athletes who have found this system, right? Why wouldn't we recover and take time to recover with our families or with our teams or whatever that might be? Why wouldn't we celebrate the little wins beyond just hitting these massive goals, right? This massive exit that we're working towards. And why wouldn't we train our bodies and ourselves to be, at our personal lives, if you will, to overcome what we've been through that's gotten us to the place where we are and, and train and, and repeat and, and make sure that we're, where we're going is actually where we need to from a personal perspective, whether that's with our families, our friends, or just our general operating system. And so um, one big thing to me is I worked on and I, I work with founders on not just their personal, their business system, but their personal system. Um, Mine really boils down to five key elements. Um, the first is I needed to get an executive coach. It was a no-brainer. Um, and I can talk about that more, and you have to be ready. But that When did you get that? At what stage did you get that? That's a, a question people think about. When, should, when am I ready for that? <laughs> oh, man. Let me, let me come back to that because sure, sure. I, I, I got a I I little story that I think connects to that that will be really valuable for everyone. Sure, um, sure. But, but first is the executive coach. The second is um, I created a personal life strategy, like a personal three to five year plan, if you will. Nice. Um, I, I um, do these beast mode challenges, whether they're 30 or 90 days, you know, somewhere between monthly and quarterly that is sometimes workout oriented, sometimes, you know, my fiance focused, <laughs> sometimes just not working uh, around the clock and making sure that I do the little things that, that matter most outside of work. Sometimes it's work, right? Um, and then the fourth and fifth one are I, I do some really crazy stuff monthly and weekly. The, the monthly is I either have dinner with myself or a scotch with myself to go over previous month's goals and what I'm working towards in the next month, um, which sounds crazy. I probably look like a lunatic, but it's yeah, <laughs> it, it's worked for me. Um, and then I on the weekly side, Sunday nights, I take at least 45 minutes of reflection and you know weekly goals for the next week, you know canceling meetings I need to. Um, and obviously explaining why, right? Moving meetings around that I need to and explaining why and, and ultimately um, not sacrificing my own personal life because I've got a plan across the board. So 45-minute weekly reflections, two-hour monthly reflections, 30 to 90-day beast challenges, personal life strategy, and get an executive coach at the right time. Now you asked what was the right time. That is crazy because my I, there's a lot of people who would uh, tell you that they've, I told you so, Jim, for the last, uh, for the last, you know, uh, decade or so. I first ran into the idea um, about a decade ago and was not ready. I had tried out a bunch of people and ultimately found flaws in everyone. And yeah, nobody's going to be able to teach me, you know, what I, what I need. And I'm the expert and, you know, I, I don't need a personal life strategy, blah, blah, blah. I'm the business building guy, right? Um, but for, for all of us, I think we can say that 2020 was this tough year and, and resulted in a lot of introspection. And for me, part of that was that the company was growing, but I personally wasn't. Um, 
felt like I had plateaued as a leader. Um, I was having trouble getting to the next level. I um, was being uh, forceful with my team and working too much on the business or in the business versus where I was best suited, which was on the business. Um, and I, uh, I, I worked and talked with my own advisory, my own peer network, and they encouraged me yet again to go back and, and work with and interview a few coaches. I, I did. And my coach, Coach Mike, has been transformative um, in, in everything like what I mentioned with kind of the evolution of thinking like an athlete versus thinking like a founder and connecting the two. Um, or, you know, just my day-to-day uh, interactions with my team and the 360 reviews that, you know, I, I get that help me understand the impact that I'm having on my business and, again, in my personal life with my fiancé. Um, do it at your own risk because right? you, you reveal some things that uh, you may not want to hear, um, although you will eventually. Um, and I think, you know, my own growth journey over the last year has been transformative. Um, and I hope my team and, you know, my partners and, and my fiance would tell you the same, that it's been, uh, it's been a really, it's really important that it was at the right time for me. Um, and, it's, and it's been transformative towards uh, not only my own growth, but my, my company's growth as well. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. I mean, I actually, I even do the, those weekly, every Sunday I do those, those weekly reflections and I rate, you know, all areas in my life, you know, from zero to 10 and you know, what areas I need to focus and improve. Nice. Uh, I, I think the one that I, I probably could work on and learn from you is on the, the celebration. I like that weekly kind of two hour reflection. I kind of do it, you know, here and there. I, I have these travel plans, you know, maybe once a quarter, but I think I like the monthly where, you know, you have that time to just really, you know, dedicate to, to, you know, think about things better and reflect. Um, and then, you know, the business coach, you know, I mean, or the, the executive CEO coach, you know, it's kind of been something I've been looking at. I think, you know, I've talked to a few and I think the biggest thing I realized is just how much they, they help you kind of question some things that you think, like you said, right, you're, you're pushing through, you're just trying to power through, and you, you know, you kind of help you step back and question some things and maybe some of your beliefs or self-limiting beliefs that are maybe need to, you need to tweak a little bit and, and push you in the right direction. And then you, you get that drive again. You're like, ah, oh, yeah, this is, this is what's been missing all along, right? So it's, it's, I think it's, that's great that you, you've, you found that the right person at least, right? Let me, let me tell you, once, once you find that person, um, there's no looking back. You'll know it, right? You'll, um, you obviously have to give it a shot because it's, it's awkward, it's weird, and you've got to break down before you can break through. But that breakthrough point where you're connecting your previous self to your current self to who you want to be um, is something that only a trained coach who really has gotten, gotten the time and taken the time to get to know you in a different way um, is able to, um, is able to change. So I, I look forward to hearing from you in a year or whenever it is. And let me know if you want to talk more about that. I'm, I'd be happy to share more. Absolutely. Jim. appreciate that. Um, you know, kind of looking, you know, forward now, you know, you're, you're part of a founding managing team, CEO, investor, mentor, you know, all the, all these kind of demands on, on your task, you know, and, and also a, a fiance as well. How, how, from a, from a business perspective, how do you measure your own leadership success, you know, within your team today? Is it still revenue? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, wow. That's, that's a huge question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> revenue is important, but I think, um, you know, I, if you look at any list of the toughest challenges for business owners list, you'll find hiring and retaining talent at or near the top, especially when you look at millennial talent, which we can highlight in really three simple facts. 55% of millennials are not engaged at work. 42% of millennials change their job every two years. And there's a $30 billion cost on the economy due to millennial turnover, uh, just the U S by the way. So, uh, that, that aspect, that retention and the, the attaining and retaining of talent is, is, um, really a, a core focus of ours. Um, and qualified, talented people that are going to treat your clients like you would are never easy to like hire and, and find and, and ultimately retain. And, and when you look at SaaS companies, it's even harder in the earlier stages of a company where you don't have the capital, right? You have everything working against you. You have a million things to do. You don't have the capital, time-consuming process. You can't compete with, you know, roles that are paying, you know, the Googles and the Apples of the world that are paying way more than you would be able to possibly provide. Um, but you've got one thing working for you, and that's the ability to grow talent within the organization. And whether you're millennial, you know, millennials need that. They crave that, right? Um but really people crave that um, is you know, the feeling needed, feeling an impact. And um, the more that you can instill that in your business and also, you know, align the upside, you know, have them be in the equity on the cap table, have some connection towards what they're working towards. Um, 
you will see a transformative viewpoint where you don't need to pay them the top rates in the country. You don't need to, you know, do everything for them to make them feel valuable from a compensation perspective. You need to give them the ability to see this career track that ultimately is going to put them in a place where they could only dream of if they were with a different company. And that's what we try to build at Orchid Black. And that's what we try to instill in the clients that we work with as well. Love it. Love that. That's awesome. Yeah. Jim, kind of just kind of last few questions, uh, more rapid fire. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. You ready to do it? <laughs> All right. What, what's one piece of advice you wish you had known would tell your 25-year-old self? Uh, there's a Japanese concept called ikigai, which is uh, the Japanese term for a reason for being or true purpose. As early as you can, try to find your ikigai because less than 1% of people find it. What are you great at? What can you get paid to do? What are, um, well, what can you have, what impact can you have on the world? And what do you want to do? Um, and when you align those four things, whether it's in business or personal life, you found your true purpose, you found your ikigai, and that is a huge opportunity that most people cannot say. Okay. Who or what are the three best resources? It can be books or people, you said mentors, people you follow, who you'd say have been the most instrumental to your success over these last few years? Um, people, my fiance, my coach, and the rest of my team, especially my two partners, um, and books, um, Impossible to Inevitable uh, uh, for Growth, Lean Analytics for Measurement, and How to Win Friends and Influence People for Leadership and General Principles. <laughs> What does success mean to you today? Whether it's personally, business, financial, life, no, no right answer. Uh, finding a way to find financial freedom um, and take my personal roadmap to the next level, which starts with my fiance. God bless her soul. <laughs> awesome, Jim. This, this has been great. Uh, love, love this podcast. Where can founders and marketers going to touch with you? Maybe learn more about you and your ventures and uh, maybe they, if they want to learn if their business is the right fit to work with you guys. Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn at Jim Barnes Jr. or Grow Smart, Grow Fast. Or you can just find me on email, jb at orchid.black. I make at least a couple hours a week for complimentary office hours to see if there's a fit with us or with someone else I know. Um, so personal growth, career growth, we do all growth. Just give me a call. Awesome. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate you jumping on today. Yep. Thank you. Have a good one. Thank you all for listening in to this episode and joining SAS District today. Don't forget to leave a review and subscribe for future episodes where we interview top leaders in the SaaS industry. If you're a SaaS company looking to grow and unlock the true value of your business, get in touch with us at horizoncapital.com. And myself or one of our consultants will provide a free assessment to help you get there and hit your goals. If you have any feedback or suggestions for this podcast, please DM us on Instagram or LinkedIn at Horizon Capital and help us improve our content for you all. Thanks again and hope to see you on the next one.